Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. I literally felt my brain go, thunk, elevate. Nothing's quite the nootropic like a microdose. So we started experimenting and blending all these different traditional nootropics, L-theanine, L-tyrosine, alpha-GPC. And we really started to develop these formulations of life optimization. The public at large doesn't quite understand it. With the microdosing psilocybin, let's understand it in the terms of like tripping balls, a heroic dose, a therapeutic dose, historically has been 5,000 milligrams. What you want to go for is perceptible, non-intoxicating, non-hallucinatory. That's the definition of microdosing. Microdosing tends to happen between one to 400 milligrams, but sometimes it can be five to seven. 700 milligrams. You know, I'm 222 pounds. I have clients that are female and 123 pounds. They might need a stronger microdose than me. It's based on neurological needs. Ideally, you're going to be somewhere between 5 to 20, 25% noticeable increase in your overall life efficacy, patience, performance, energy, neurocognition, libido. Now, if you're broken, so my vets, major depressive disorder, PTSD, I will often hear 50 to 70% better. I have numerous vets who told me that they no longer have night terrors. You know, we're in a calamity of mental health right now. 78 million antidepressant prescriptions were written last year. Adderall abuse, especially amongst young people. Mushrooms move the brain in a beneficial direction, whether you're cognizant of it or not. And if you go on a course of microdosing and you're combining with some intentionality, maybe some journaling, some real thought, like it can really put the wind in your sails. Adam Shell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm grateful for uh, our friend, mutual friend Greg, for introducing us. Yeah, uh, and excited to to kind of dig into the many things that not only you've experienced uh, through your time here, but what you're working on right now. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, uh, how long did you move to Austin? We moved to Austin um, two years and five months ago. And you came from California. Yeah, so we were in North. So <clears throat> we were in uh, Los Angeles. And then COVID hit and I'm like, oh, it's going to be bad here. And I had a cannabis distribution company and I was always making runs to Northern California. So the thing with cannabis distribution is that like if you were a potato broker and the pound of potatoes was between, you know, 750 to $2,000, the boss would buy the potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the easiest way. So you know, if you can run a cannabis distribution company, but that basically means you're like a glorified truck driver, um, especially back when I was, when I was into it. So COVID hit and I'm like, it's going to be a shit show in LA. Uh, so we moved to Northern California and it was actually worse. Like they couldn't wait to torture children and bankrupt their own businesses there. So it was not a great 11 months of living in Northern California which is a shame because it's a spectacularly beautiful. I mean, we, we moved to like the most beautiful place at the absolute worst time. Mm-hmm. So we were there for 11 months and literally they changed. Um, they were the restrictions around COVID and trying to get children to take the vaccine was so extraordinary. They changed the homeschool policy in the state and in the county where you couldn't go pick up your work from the school if you didn't show vaccine verification. So we were like, fuck that. And um, more, I've said, I'll meet you in Austin. So she got in the road on August 17th 
My eldest and I, uh, he had a soccer tournament. We finished a soccer tournament. I'm literally, they're in the finals of like a major, like high level 12 year old soccer tournament in Sacramento. Um, it's a shootout. I'm on the phone with a realtor. We're doing a three-way between my wife who's pulled over on the side of the road in Arizona, our realtor and, um, and me. And she's walking through the house. She's like, it's in the neighborhood you like. It's going to be perfect. You know, I think you should move on it. I'm like, okay. Ah! And I'm like reacting to the shootout. I'm like, ah! She's like, what? I'm like, it's a shootout. I'm like, put the offer in, put the offer in. So put the offer in. And then we got here. We stayed in a, uh, we stayed in a hotel. Uh, the hotel. Um, what's the name of the place? It's off the 360 that had this Italian name. It's right near where Apple keeps their headquarters. They just renovated it. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking yeah, about. So I drive by it every day. They basically matched like, they gave us a suite on the top floor. It was so cool. They matched like an Airbnb price. So we for like for 112 bucks a day, we had a like a 1200 square foot suite on the top floor. It's like, they were amazing. So we stayed there for a month, got the kids in school. And then we've been in Austin ever since. We love it. Damn. Yeah. I had to go back and forth for work pretty heavy for about the eight, first eight months. And then I was able to kind of fold down the, well, cannabis industry in California, like 2021 just totally imploded. So it was pretty natural to dissolve uh, the business and companies there and, and have been Austin full-time since then. Well, how did you, how did you get into the cannabis industry? Cause you, you know, you spent many years as a chef, you're an author. Is it tomato rhapsody? Tomato, tomato rhapsody. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't really true, but I'll kind of say it for effect. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm basically a failed novelist turned, turned, you know, turned weed entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was doing a number of things. Um, I played football at Northwestern, um, and then I got a master's degree in creative writing and I was living in Los Angeles and I was, uh, doing some work for my dad's company, writing cultural global leadership and training models. I was uh, teaching yoga. I was seriously, my lower back was going out all the time at 24 years old before the yoga craze hit. And I'm living in New York city, football injuries. I'm like, what's going to happen when I'm 44, I'm 24. So I walked into a yoga studio and like, literally it was like, all the things that made me kind of an average, you know, college Big Ten linebacker. I was slow, weak, flexible, Jewish, and funny. Um, made me an incredible yoga teacher. So it's like, <laughs> so I was in LA, and I was I'm like literally I could do splits right here, right now. Um, Damn. Yeah. So um, we are on camera, right? I mean, I don't have to, we don't have to move the setup, but um, I was so naturally good at yoga. And I was also kind of like crazy and irreverent about it. And I had the leadership and the hard ass, the linebacker stuff. So <clears throat> I was um, teaching yoga and I ended up being like a celebrity yoga teacher. I had uh, like major executives and actors, like serious Hollywood A-listers. And I never meant this. I was taking yoga classes a lot when I moved to LA. When you, when you moved to LA in 1998, they greeted you at the border of the county with a yoga mat. Said, "Here, choose a class." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody was doing yoga. So I'm like, oh, "Fuck it, I'll do yoga." <laughs> so, um, and I found a style of yoga originated by a guy from Texas called John Friend Anasara Yoga, which I really connect with because it was very biomechanically and alignment specific, and you could heal in injuries. And the anatomy of his yoga teaching was incredible. And as a guy who had been a Big Ten linebacker and put a lot of hits on the body, like it healed things. It was incredible. And I took to that style of yoga very well. And then I had the leadership training and, you know, like a lot of yoga teachers there, that's been their thing, like yoga, like, so they can almost be, I call them lotus eatery too much, you know, sure. like they can be too lotus eatery. Like, you know, and I was, I was like 
funny, irreverent, and a total hard ass. Like I literally wanted to destroy people because that's what I like when I work out. Like I don't have that much time. I want to, I want to get a serious workout in and I want it to be smart. But if I can laugh along the way, so I had pack classes like Matt to Matt workshops. And then I got this whole celebrity clientele, never meant to do any of it, but I never wanted to be like, go all in on kind of the yoga thing. I just, I don't know, man. And so I, um, I was, we were living in this, like there's one little middle-class enclave of Calabasas, like under the shadow of the Kardashians, there's this, there's a double wide community. Now they're nice, like double wide. It's not a trailer park, but it's like people over the years, like, you know, they, they glued together like two or three of these double wides. And it's a really, it started as a senior community, but then it opened up and it's like the one place you can live in like a really nice part of LA, like as middle-class. So we were there and we were going to this school called the Muse School, which was run by James Cameron's wife in the Malibu mountains. And James, James Cameron's wife and James, Ca- James Cameron, the Titanic director, sister-in-law. And the school was like amazing on paper. It was a uh, vegan school, uh, seriously ecologically minded and component to it, uh, child-based education. But when you're in the school, it was the fucking bunch of loony bins, man. It was like- <laughs> How so? Dude, they- the best teacher on summer break when he was volunteering his time, um, ate, brought some hot dogs on campus to eat because he was working and painting them for, uh, they fired him for that. Like, dude, it was crazy there. It was crazy. And I probably could get in trouble if I go into too much detail. Yeah, I think that's, like, that's fair. We'll keep it at yeah, that. It was, it was just basically, and what I've found with a lot of vegans having gone to a vegan community and vegan school is they kind of love animals and hate humans. So (laughs) (laughs) that checks out. So, you know, and this was, this was, um, 2016, 17, so forth like that. So we're living in, we're living in like the one little middle-class enclave in, uh, Calabasas. And, um, I started a, um, uh, soccer not-for-profit. So we were playing like rec league and youth soccer. I forget the name of the organization. And, uh, we hosted a coach from Spain, fell in love with the kid. Like he was like, played at a very high level himself. He was a great young man. He stayed with us. And then I started a soccer not-for-profit. And because we were going to this very influential school, the players on the team, like the families were like crazy. Like, I don't want to mention names, but like major families, like celebrity banking, like crazy. And so one of the dads in the soccer club was like, Hey man, I like the way you get shit going. You got all these families and these influential families and you, and you got uh, this soccer organization, this great coach, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, and he said, come to this meeting with me now. Oh, I should say, I should precede this. My life was a little bit in turmoil. I had spent 10 years working on a novel about the history of the tomato. It's called tomato Rhapsody. And it's basically the, um, forbidden it's the story of the forbidden romance that, um, and through this kind of Romeo and Juliet, like Tuscan romance and love affair, the whole history of the tomatoes revealed. And everybody thought it was nuts. I was wasting my thirties writing this book. The book sold in four days. It sold for over a million bucks. It was a multi-book deal. They pushed the timing of the book forward because they were, um, ba- uh, Bantam, the division of Random House was so excited for it. Um, would that end up being a real mistake? So, but between the purchasing of the manuscript and the publishing of the book, uh, the 2008, 2009 housing crash happened. So um, the publishing world completely fell apart. The number one, two, and three of Bantam that all bought my book and were supporting my career got fired. And literally the day my novel came out, Michael Jackson died. So <laughs> <laughs> like every culture writer in the country went to that, you know, who gives a shit about a novel. Um, 
So it was like, it, it never, it never happened. And so uh, the movie deals, the expectation, they canceled the paperback, they canceled the audio book. They tried to sue me for the advance back. And so I was like, my life was totally upside down. So I was regrouping. I went back to teaching yoga, writing for my dad's company. Um, and, uh, so I started the soccer not for profit. That's kind of the backstory there, the history. So this dad says to me, Hey man, I like the way you operate. You get a lot of shit done. What are you doing? I said, well, he said, come to this meeting with me. So he introduced me to the cannabis industry, uh, on the fundraising side, he had put a fund together. He was a money guy. And, um, we, I actually was surprisingly good at raising capital. People were very excited about the industry, but about six weeks, in, six weeks into it, I realized, Oh, um, these two guys who run this company, they're lying sociopaths. Like this is a problem. Um, so I blew the deal up. I kept my integrity. Um, took us a while to get the money back, but we got their money back. But it was my introduction to the cannabis industry. And I had started to meet people and I got hired by like a, a legit corporate company that was forming. They hired me to do business development. And, you know, one of the things in the cannabis industry, I, I hadn't had much experience in business. I was, I was a novelist, screenwriter, a yoga teacher. Uh, I had uh, trained as a chef. Um, so I had a little private catering company. I'd chefed all in, um, I'd chefed in New York City for a very preeminent catering company called Glorious Food, really got my chops. Like we did big, big parties in the 90s, like the uh, Guggenheim, Met, Grand Central Station, all the major social events. You know, we would be shaving Tuscan white truffles on, you know, 900, you know, platters for, you know, bankers kind of go like crazy money, crazy parties, Temple of Dandor, you know, like nuts. Um, so I had some serious cooking chops. So I had a private chefing company, uh, when I was in LA, a lot of like side hustling as I was working on the dream. The dream was the novel, the novel fell apart. And then I fell into the cannabis industry. So I ended up getting hired to do business development for this company. Um, the owner of the company, I get along with most people well, but the owner of the company was, uh, it was interesting. So, um, he was, I'm Jewish. He's Jewish. His office was filled with football memorabilia. He never played a down of football in his life. He fancied himself a storyteller. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then he was short and bald. So here I am tall with hair. I was actually a scholarship athlete and a big 10 linebacker. I'm a published novelist. I have my hair. I'm like, oh fuck, this guy's going to hate my guts. And sure enough, he hated my guts. I was, had no control over any of it. So I didn't last very long there. But <clears throat> the interesting thing about the cannabis industry is the bar is so low, especially back then. It was just filled with like scumbags, incompetence, stoners. You had this new influx of kind of failed Wall Street sociopaths trying to capitalize, doing money grabs and land deals and licensing deals. Um, if you're honest and competent, it was the new extraordinary. So I'd be in these business development meetings and somebody would say to me, hey, can you get me this? I'm like, oh yeah, I know this person. So before you know it, I started brokering, mostly in oil and crude oil, like um, for vape pens and edibles and so forth. That's a finished oil. At the time, it was very hard. It was a more volatile process to make the crude oil. So if you could get the crude oil and get it to the guys who made the finished products, like that was a real, that was a great flip. It was a great money game. And I was very good at that. And so that one thing led to the next thing. And then I met a, um, met a guy in LA who was super connected, had a great Rolodex. Um, he had local LA distribution. He never liked to leave his home. And I'm like, I'll hit the road. So I just went up to Humboldt and started meeting farms and farmers. And the farmers liked me and trusted me. And, you know, basically within like three years of, um, of getting into the space, we had a multi-million dollar distribution company going, driving two vans, licensed drivers and bringing cannabis down um, the state. You know, I would basically fly or drive up with 750 to 1.4 million bucks in cash. Damn. <laughs> 
Damn. It was crazy. And I would load a Sprinter van with my security guys of cannabis, drive it down and distribute it to our buyers in Los Angeles. And it was a great model. I'd work my ass off for about four days and then I'd take a week off and then I'd, so we'd do three runs a month and we were really doing very well. Um, and then we had buyers, we had distribution. And then I made the biggest mistake in my life. I got out of my lane and I bought farms. COVID had hit. I was in Northern California and I was like, what could go wrong? I mean, you know, we buy it for 900, we sell it for, you know, 12 or 13 or whatever we can get. Um, if we're growing it for 450, like, wow, that's great business. Yeah. What could go wrong? But, oh my God, dude, that is, it's so hard. Farming is so hard. And then farming without crop insurance, um, farming in an area uh, of Northern California where, you know, the quality of workers, finding good workers, you know, how competitive it is. Um, and then also, you know, I never realized the implications of, um, of weather events. So, you know, my partner and I bought into one of the larger license holder groups in Northern California. And then we had another farm. And we had um, uh, our first year we got hit with some fires. And the thing with fires, the thing with Northern California and with cannabis pharmacy, people don't realize that fires are so bad. It's like, it's not the farms that burn down. It's the smoke damage. If that, so when you grow cannabis, you know, everybody's seen the bud and then you see those hairs that come up. Those are called the trichomes. Those, those, when you see like in High Times Magazine, like the beautiful cannabis photo of the bud that's almost ready and it's got like the sticky tentacles and glistening in the morning light and so forth. There is a sap that comes off that. And those trichomes, that contains the THC, contains the terpenes, contains all the flavor. If you get smoke exposed during that time of the harvest, you're done. Because cannabis is primarily sold by quality of nose and smell. Bud structure mat matters, but like <clears throat> you need that nose. And if, if there's smoke in the air, it's going to glom onto those sticky trichomes and you're done and dusted. No one's going to buy your weed. And once you get smoke damage, you cannot correct. You can't do anything. You just got to hope that when the, if you store it well enough, so harvests start to happen in, um, well, there's what's called uh, light depth, which is like, if you've ever driven past a strawberry farm, you know, where you have the, the hoops and the, 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 the tarps that are pulled over the hoop. That's one way of growing called, um, greenhouse light deprivation. So you'll manipulate the light cycle. So okay. you get a smaller harvest in June, July, and then you get your big harvest in September, October. So if you have those October fires hit, which did for us, you're fucked, man. You're going to lose all your work. And there's no crop insurance. There's, there's nothing. And then on top of that, you have all the state compliance issues in California, which were brutal and made no sense. Um, so it's very hard. It's very labor intensive. It's very expensive. You really have to hand trim it. You can try to machine trim it, but it's not the same. So it's a very expensive labor intensive process. I didn't know how hard it was going to be. So the first year we lost most of our work because of fires and you got to put good money after bad. And then the next year, literally the day before harvest, we had an inverted atmospheric river. I think it's the second most significant weather event in the history of Northern California. We had 13 days of continuous rain and we lost every single pound. Um, because once, so what happens with with, with moisture, if you get more real rain close to harvest, moisture gets in the center of the bud and you really can't dry it out. Like, um, and then a little bit of moisture in the center of the bud, it's going to cause something called, uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting my terms. Bursitis, I think is the term, um, basically causes bud rot. And you, you hope it's not going to happen, but you have this terrible feeling in your gut that you're going to lose everything. And pretty much like we lost about 54,000 pounds of weed um, 
and then yeah, that was um, that was it, man. That was and I was done and dusted. The cannabis game it, it took me for everything I had. So growing outdoors versus indoors is a better product, yeah. Generally speaking, indoors or outdoors is a better. Outdoors product. is a better product. Okay, so here's the thing. Um, I'm glad you're asking this because questions. indoors you get to mitigate those risks of smoke and rain and, and so so here those events. So okay, cannabis the cannabis market is driven by what I call um, status and ostentatiousness. The wine market is driven by um, connoisseurs. So you can grow a wine and the real connoisseurs that drive the market, they understand the soil, they understand the tannins, they understand the real qualities of it. Um, Weed is basically driven by nose and bag appeal. How frosty, how stinky is that weed? It's not really determined by how well it smokes um, and smoke quality. It's driven by how well it photographs and how well it smells. And in terms of maximizing the genetic potentiality of the plant, for its look and its smell, indoor flower is the absolute best for the bag and nose appeal. But when you talk to real connoisseur smokers, the idea of having a 120-day crop that absorbs all that sound energy and the nutrients, the soil, if you're a real connoisseur smoker, you might like an outdoor smoke, an outdoor full-term cannabis might be the best. In fact, I'm not a real big cannabis guy. We're going to get into that later. I appreciate it. I respect it. It's a much safer, better form of recreation than I feel alcohol is. Um, I always use it topically. I like an edible if I've got some inflammation time to time and I'll take a couple of hits on a joint. You know, sometimes when we do sauna night, we'll smoke these nice blunts and stuff like that. But I'm not, I've never been a big weed guy. I've never been a consistent user and everything. I can identify good weed. I mean, you know, I've moved hundreds of thousands of pounds of weed. So I definitely can, I can spot a good bag from quarter mile away these days. But so in terms of maximizing the genetic potentiality of the plant and capturing the, uh, the kind of modern culture of cannabis in terms of the bag appeal and the nose appeal, indoor flowers, the absolute best. You have the most controls in terms of like a true smoke for the full terpene effect and the entourage effect of all the different cannabinoids and terpenes. Um, a lot of people think outdoor flowers, the best. It's yeah. kind of, that's, that's how I would kind of ascertain the market. So this shit storm happens and you've kind of left with no other option, but to move on from that, to sell everything. Yeah. Well, a lot went bankrupt and a lot sold and, and a lot, we just kind of fled. Um, so moved to Texas. Now the whole time that I was very cash positive in the cannabis industry, um, I had a psychedelic experience as a 19 year old that I never forgot. And I'm really kind of like an athlete. I'm an athlete intellectual. Like I've never really been, and I could never party. Like I was a college linebacker, 235 pounds. I'd have three beers. I'd be sick the next day. Like I can't party. I can't stay up late. I always used to tell people I like to party like an Italian peasant from four to eight on a Sunday afternoon. Give me a long table. I'll fill it with food, some wine. Everybody leaves at eight 30. You know, (laughs) I beg for a blowjob and go to bed. Like that's, That's my routine. So (laughs) um, I could never party. And because I just was never good at partying, um, I had this fondness for the psychedelic experience I had as a 19-year-old. So uh, my mom was living in Florida. My mom, my stepfather, I was my my sophomore year in college. And um, I, my brother was at University of Colorado Boulder and we met at my mom's place in um, 
uh, not Orlando, somewhere like that. And he had some mushrooms and he and I had a bonding experience. He's four and a half years older. And the thing with like older brothers is that, and, and siblings is that if you're, and I know this because I have kids now, if you have a four-year-old and a six-year-old or a six and a half-year-old, they're in the same space. They're, they're, they're both into Pokemon at the same time. But if you have a four and an eight and a half-year-old, they're in totally different fucking worlds, you know? So it's not, so my brother and I, like, we love each other. We're cool, but it was like never that closeness. Um, but, you know, he was in graduate school. Uh, sorry, he was at graduate school at NYU. I was an undergrad. We met up in Florida. We drove down to Key West. Um, he had a bag of mushrooms. We brewed up these mushrooms in Key West. And this is when Key West, I haven't been there recently, but I've heard like, it's kind of gone a little, but this Key West was funky back then. Interesting, fascinating, like scary, funky, so cool. And we rode these cruisers around, just zooted out of our minds. And I'd never felt like my joints and my limbs. And it was just this deliciousness. And, and we, we pedaled these cruiser bikes around and we had this great day and we were laughing. And, and it was a very, it was a very recreational trip. Uh, but it was, a, I think we did like three point over, we probably were in the heroic range of about five grams. Cause I was like, it, I was out there. You were in it. Yep. And here's what happened. So I, um, we, we pulled down to this public beach in Key West and it had these uh, beautiful um, Southern pines, kind of sparse, rocky. You could see through them and you could see the beach. And he runs into the local, uh, the bathroom there. And I'm holding both cruiser bikes and literally out of nowhere pops this Vietnam veteran. And he's, um, he starts telling me, he's like, yeah. And I, he's kind of, he's sweet and he's got a sweetness about him. So it was nothing scary. I was 19, you know, and, uh, he, he's like, uh, yeah, I can't live. Uh, I have to live outside ever since Vietnam. And, you know, I, 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 I was a prisoner of war and I was kept in a mud confinement and, and he starts to share his story with me. And as he's telling me this story, I'm realizing he's 38, I'm 19. Something happened to him as a 19 year old. He's had twice the life now and he can't recover from. And in this state, this altered state that I was in, like it hit me so profoundly about violence and war and that our psychological state and disposition is so fragile. And if we do anything to affect that too much, like you might never recover. And it was, and that stayed with me like my whole life. So here I am like late forties and, um, I got exposed to mushrooms again um, in the weed industry. A buddy of mine um, had some mushroom capsules at the kind of microdose level. So I, I started taking them and, and then I heard a Stamets interview at the time and uh, I was like, Oh, I think there's something to this. And I didn't really, the capsules that he gave me, like they weren't great, but I did notice something. Um, and I had a local guy in the community that we lived in there in Calabasas and we would meet in the sauna and, his kids and my kids were friends and he was a Russian guy. And, and, um, he was, turns out he knew about growing weed and he came from a family of, we started talking about psychedelics and that I was, I'm not really a weed guy, but I'm kind of interested in psychedelics and come a couple of experiences that I had in this profound experience I had as a 19 year old that completely changed my worldview about, about war and violence and, and this kind of our psychological, the fragility of our, of our psyche, you know, profound. Um, and, uh, I said to him, uh, we became friends. And I said, uh, he was very crafty and sciencey. I think he had an undergraduate degree in science. I said, do you think he could grow mushrooms? He said, yeah. So he put up a cultivation and he was great at it. And literally within like a year, he's like an extraordinary mushroom grower. And then he started to bring different genetics over and do all kinds of things. So I'm like, and uh, so we started using them. We would test them at the 
mid-level. We test them at around a gram to make sure they're effective. And then we started bringing the levels down. And then I kind of had this revelation. Nootropics had just come out at the time. And I was taking uh, Alpha Brain, good product, very good company. And I'm like, hmm, but nothing's quite the nootropic like a microdose. You know, you take 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams of psilocybin and like, there's no nootropic in the world that touches that. So I'm like, but what if we started blending? So I st- we started experimenting and blending all these different traditional tropics, L-theanine, L-tyrosine, alpha-GPC, um, you know, magnesium, different minerals and so forth. And we really started to develop these formulations of life optimization. So <clears throat> over the course of the development, the cannabis world imploded and I was in like the worst state I've ever been. And I'm not really prone to, like I said, I'm not prone to drug abuse or alcohol abuse. I'm just not wired that way. Um, but I was, I was 263 pounds, I was really depressed. I had just lost everything I'd worked for you know, millions. I had destroyed. And what happens with cannabis distribution was very painful. I don't know. I mean, you were a very successful investor, but I don't know if you've ever lost anybody else's money. No. It's terrible, Cal. If you're like a decent human being yeah, and like you lose other people's investment and we were doing so well in the cannabis industry for so long. I thought, what could go wrong? You know, I had my guys on I was, I had my guys invested with me and they was paying them like 10% a month and everything and everything's going great. And then, dude, so the one thing I didn't mention about the cannabis industry is like, first you had the first year of fires and we had the next year of floods and then the cannabis industry imploded. Like they licensed so many more farms than they had distribution outlets and they were such, and then so many other states were legalizing. Um, I want to finish the story, but we should talk about the way the cannabis industry really operates because it's very interesting. Yeah. No one really, and everybody gets it wrong. Um, but I had lost other people's money and it was, and I had lost all my money and people don't understand when you lose all your money, like it's gone. Like I can't, I can't, I can't. And, and then the cannabis industry imploded. So when I got into the game and we were crushing it, we were, you know, outdoor was selling. If you, you'd pick up 900,000, 1200, $1,500 outdoor. By the time it got down to LA, there's three to five points on it, two to five points on it. Explain like, that for people. What's the points? A mean? point is a hundred bucks. Okay. So, you know, if you're picking up a pound, a good outdoor at 1200 bucks, like it was going to sell in LA for 1350 to 1500, depending on, you know, the quality and so forth. Like a lot of people could it's make good a good margin, really, 10, 20, you know, yeah, 25%. And now, and now imagine you have a thousand pounds of it in your van. Like you're doing really well and you're doing really well for a lot of people. But when, so we had the fires, we had the floods, and then there was this unbelievable downturn in the market. And we all kind of knew it was coming and we didn't want to recognize it. The big, big distro guys and companies were saying, I think it's going to go down to 500 bucks a pound in 2021. And this is terrifying because at that point, it's costing you at least 400 to 450 bucks a pound to grow it, trim it, and pay the taxes on it. So you start to hear 500 bucks, you're like, I'm out of business. But, and literally by the time the 2021 harvest hit, and into sales for 2021 and 2022, it was down to 350 bucks a pound. You're yeah, up. so people, for people to understand, it is just a pure supply and demand. There's so much supply that you have to, you either sell it at some price or you're not selling any of it. So sell it at 300 is better than selling it at zero. Right, but the thing about it, there was so much weed on the market because mm-hmm. California licensed 5X more farms than distribution, than licensed legal distribution. And then what had happened is the dirty little secret in the cannabis industry is the black market controls that game. And I'm talking like there's an 80 year infrastructure of, this is what I always tell people. So 
if it was illegal to move corn out of Nebraska, Nebraskans would figure out some pretty crafty ways to get corn to the rest of the state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got to have corn, right? Yeah. You got to figure out. And like, I'm not going to name names, but like I was sitting in a meeting with this licensed cannabis distribution and branding company that I was first working for. And we had a major nutritional bar walk in to a meeting with us. And I thought, okay, like, you know, we've all heard about how rappers, when they hit it, they, they get their crew, you know, and they bring weed in. And, and that's true. Like they do, they, they run, you know, the, the game in ca- the California game is driven by the New York, Atlanta, Chicago, you know, North Carolina markets, like the, the, the strains they like and how much they're picking up. It controls the whole thing. There's incredibly sophisticated mechanisms for getting cannabis all across the country. And they've been around for a long time. And so, but I, I figured the entertainment industry, you know, the gangster game, the weed game, you know, some transportation companies. Yeah. But like, it goes so far beyond that. So we're sitting in a meeting and we have a meeting with a major nutritional bar. Like it's everywhere. And I think, okay, they're going to want to talk to us about a CBD bar and you know, about some hemp because you know, we this company was into a multitude of things. They walk into the meeting and there's, there's one of their science guys and there's somebody who looks like they're like a 60 year old retired cop. And then there's somebody who looks like a real LA weed guy. And I'm like, this is interesting. The first thing they sit down in the meeting, they say, um, we need help getting 400 pounds to X city all the way across the country a month. Can you help us with that? And I'm like, what the fuck? And so suddenly realized like this whole nutrition bar company was built upon moving boxes. The term is moving boxes. So a box is a hundred pounds. Um, half a box is 50 pounds, quarter box. So this is how we, when you were in the big distribution game, this is how you spoke of things. So I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> this nutrition bar is like, and then I started to realize so many businesses coming out of California, legit businesses, they built their brands on uh, the cash flow of moving boxes across the country. I'm not going to say which one of these um, uh, kind of national energy drink tours, but yeah, like yeah. I know a guy who's running one of these energy drink kind of extreme tours who would fill his trucks with not only the equipment to promote these events, but box after box of weed. And he would hit every event and they'd be selling weed out the back door by the pound. So for so the fucking game is crazy, man. And it's, it has a level of like power players and establishment that would shock most people. And when I hear the podcast, like everybody gets it wrong, man. Like it's, it's a really legit business with, um, it's black market. Yeah. But, but the infrastructure is so sophisticated to get cannabis all throughout the country. And it's been around for a very long time and very established players that would surprise a lot of people are in the game. And that's, that's what funds it. And that's what funds Northern California, which basically also makes you call into question about like, what is, you know, what is black market? And what does that really mean? Because during my five, six years of running the distro and going back and forth through California, Northern California, like literally once you get North of Santa Rosa, California, about 75 miles North of San Francisco, there's an explosion of vitality along the 101 that was completely derived from the cannabis industry hotels and motels and restaurants and especially farming supply stores, like unbelievable amounts. So it, you know, that black market cash crop did a lot, a spectacular amount of good for a lot of communities up there. And they're very, very dependent on it. And they're really going through hard times right now as the, you know, because the prices haven't come back. They haven't. They have not. I mean, I'm not in that game anymore. Sure. But <clears throat> I've got friends that are and I mean, literally you can get a really good pound of outdoor weed for five, 600 bucks. Yeah. It used to be 1500 bucks. 
So, and they've gotten more efficient and better at growing it. Like they've gotten the cost of goods down to 200, 250 bucks, but still, man, like, yeah. you, you know, from, you know, investments and stuff, like when you're, you need to have a, you need to have about a three to five X on your initial good in order to, you know, pay your taxes, pay your employees and so forth. So when you hear like, you know, you're growing it for 250, selling it for 500, like that's not quite enough. No. You, you know, farms need to get 750 bucks a pound to, to have it, to make a decent living, pay their workers and, and do everything else. So it's, it's, it's really tough right now. So fortunately you fell into the microdosing. Oh space. yeah. Sorry. Okay. No, so no, we're good. So the whole, I love time, it. Whole, I love all the background. I think it's really helpful. Uh, I mean, you and I have had some conversations about this, but I, but I think the, the public at large um, doesn't quite understand it. And when you were sharing with me the first time, yeah, it was fascinating to me because I did invest in a um, cannabis kind of entity back in 2016 or 17. And I've, I've been able to see how they've, you know, kind of ridden the, the kind of peaks and valleys of this whole thing. And, you know, fortunately they had uh, enough solid infrastructure and didn't overextend. They definitely took some pain, but they had enough cash on hand where they've been able to acquire some of these other ones that just weren't able to make it. Yeah. And so now, you know, as you said, prices, aren't back to where they were, but they're starting to climb again. Finally, I think this last quarter was like the first real uptick they've seen with, you know, there's a major compression in price. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, but yeah, that, that, that probably, it hurt a lot of people. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I have this Russian buddy and he funds out, uh, I fund out a grow and we really start to experiment with what are the synergistic blends that maximize the, properties of the types of psilocybin mushrooms that we're growing. And, you know, I really think we came upon um, some real magic there, you know, that there are, I mean, look, everybody knows the Stamets stack, you know, you blend in some niacin. You know, um, I, although I would say that Paul Stamets genius, adore him. Um, it's much too much niacin that he recommends most people because there's niacin that exists in lion's mane. So you put lion's mane, psilocybin and niacin together, you're getting um, a double niacin. So, you know, everybody knows about the Stamets stack and there's a synergistic blending, but there's a lot of other nutrients and um, uh, nootropics and other emotional adaptogenic herbs and so forth that blend very well. And so we started to uh, build our company and, and build our brand. <clears throat> um, and we really wanted to be about life optimization. Oh yeah. So I'm 263 pounds. I'm depressed. Depressed is all hell. Um, you know, uh, I still have my partner was still developing. It was called bulldozing at the time. It was a different company, mm. um, which was a bit of a double entendre and everything. Um, and um, we had developed what we now call our genius formula. And I was driving the distro van um, and I took two genius. So that's 200 milligrams of active and the other things. And I literally, whenever we develop a new formula, we take 10 days off so we can test it clean. We just flush. So I had been 10 days off microdosing and this was our new combination of nootropics and psilocybin. We grow three to four different types of psilocybin mushrooms and we, um, we variate them depending on the formula for maximum effect. And I literally felt my brain go thunk, like elevate, not stoned, not shroomy, not high, but it was what the new normal could be. It was as if 
you have had mineral deficient water your whole life. And finally you have like real water with proper minerals. And you're like, oh God, like this is how working out should feel. Like I felt my brain reach a new operational normal. And I was like, oh, we're on to something. Like this is extraordinary. And uh, then we started to push real hard. We had our, our flagship bulldozing product was called uh, Brain Supreme. And then I had just built the packaging and all the stuff. And I was talking to a distributor guy. He's like, Brain Supreme. It's a good name for a company. And I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when somebody's right, yeah. you just spent all this time, energy and money. You're like, oh man, it took me about three weeks from like, all right, you're right. Fuck it. There's 7,500 bucks lost. So, yeah. and those were real precious dollars to me. They still are. So we reformulated the company's Brain Supreme. Our flagship formula is Genius. We have Feel Good. Um, we have Brains and Balls, which are going to change that name to Athlete. I love the name Brains and Balls, yeah. but um, it's very good for women too because women need a healthy testosterone levels. And then we have an extra strength variation called Black Stack. Those are our four formulas. Um, and so uh, Genius is our nootropic blend. Now, any any microdose of psilocybin is a nootropic in and of itself. Like I would probably say if it's good mushrooms, it's going to be a, the best nootropic you could probably take um, with the long-term cumulative brain benefits. I would probably say that we'll maybe get into later. Microdosing LSD is, I think, more, you're going to notice it kind of more profoundly, but I, and I think it opens up certain levels of consciousness, but I don't think it has the long-term cumulative neurological benefits that microdosing psilocybin does. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit, because I know I've talked about it on the podcast um, from time to time, but for, for anyone who didn't happen to listen to those episodes or can't remember, like, let's break down some of the benefits that, you know, that not only you've experienced, but would have been kind of uh, shared, whether anecdotally or scientifically. So, uh, well, I'd like to, I think it's a very interesting time when it comes to like so-called experts, you know? So um, they're so often wrong. They're so often, and I don't think in the mushroom space, but they're so often wrong. They're so often being misled by who's funding them out. So I'm not even, yeah, and, that's I, for and, sure. and I would say with a guy like me, like I'm an idea guy, I'm a sales guy, I'm a marketing guy. Like I have my science guys, like I come up with the ideas and then they, you know, they'll, they'll do the actual research. I'm like, what if we blend, you know, what if we took kind of the best components of alpha brain and all these other nootropics and we blah, blah, blah. And, and then they figure that part out. But what, if I'm sitting in this chair, I, I'm the anecdotal guy because I've literally spoken to 5,000 people about how to microdose and what the best results are. And I've got, and, and I have a wealth of experience on that. So you're going for perceptible. This whole, even the, even James Fadiman, who developed this term of uh, sub-perceptible or non-perceptible, he realized that's the wrong term. I knew there was a wrong term as soon as I heard it. I'm like, no, no, it's perceptible. It's non-hallucinatory. It's non-intoxicating. But, and it, microdosing is so subjective, you know? that you really do, I'm not trying to be self-promoting here, but you do need a little bit of coaching is a good idea. And also some patience with yourself because it's not based on body weight. You know, I'm 222 pounds, you know, and I have clients that are uh, female and 123 pounds. They might need a stronger microdose than me. It's based on neurological needs. It's not based on biological weight. And so you have to approach it very subjectively and you have to kind of enter into the journey of it and the process of it. So, but what you want to go for is perceptible, non-intoxicating, non-hallucinatory. That's the definition of microdosing. 
Microdosing tends to happen between one to 400 milligrams, but sometimes it can be five to 700 milligrams. I have some MMA guys that need to microdose at a thousand milligrams or one gram is a microdose for them and it's cured uh, tinnitus, tinnitus or tinnitus? Yeah, yeah I don't I think both work. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. So um, it's cured tinnitus, it's brought back neurological function and so forth. So let me kind of, I'll bring you through like the brain, the, the brain supreme kind of spiel. You're going for perceptible, non-intoxicating, non-hallucinatory. If you're maybe a guy like you and I, like a little bit bent, you know, we've hit some rough spots um, and you're kind of high performing individual, ideally you're going to be somewhere between five to 20, 25% noticeable increase in your overall life efficacy, patience, performance, energy, neurocognition, um, libido. I get such feedback about libido that it helps with, uh, it helps libido. Um, if you take it during the first part of the day, it will help you with your sleep in the evening. Um, and you're going to find if you, I tell people like set the expectation somewhere between five to 15% overall efficacy. You know, it's not, it's not a panacea, you know, it's a, it's a, a supplement that you know you're taking supplements. And it's like, this is why I tell people, you know, I'm a supplement guy. I always have been for years, naturopaths, you know, functional MDs, integrative MDs, spend a lot of money on supplements. I think they work. I hope they work. Everybody else got sick. I didn't get as sick. You know, I'm feeling pretty good. But when you add a little psilocybin to your supplements, you're like, oh, it's working. Like I know what I'm spending my money on. And that's what you really want. Like you want to know it's working. You want to know it's perceptible. Now, if you're broken, so my vets, you know, major depressive disorder, PTSD, suicide ideation. You know, I've got some people who've had some real hard life traumas, you know, um, real early childhood trauma. I will often hear 50 to 70% better. I have numerous vets who told me that they no longer have night terrors. I had one gentleman whose night terrors were so bad. He about three times a year would attack his wife in his sleep. Um, she was getting raped and he was defending her. And luckily when you're sleep punching, it's not full force, but it's terrifying. And it totally affected their relate. They love each other, happy couple, but like uh, he stopped having night terrors on like as soon as he took the product. Um, suicide ideation. I've heard of microdosing on numerous cases. Like I don't think of killing myself anymore. I have a therapist in Denver who uses it um, for her clientele. And she wrote me, she said, I have four patients on suicide watch. I've got them on brain supreme and they're all off suicide watch. She's like, it's miraculous what's happening. So the amazing thing about the mushrooms, the amazing thing that I found about microdosing is like the more fucked up you are, the more the mushroom comes to meet you. So if you're, if you're high performance guys, like I think like we are, I know you are, all right? <laughs> you're going to get like the five, 10% bump. Okay. That's what you're going for. If you're somebody that's had some, some real traumas, you know, in the best scenarios, those people tell me they're 50, 60, 70% better. And now in terms of the dosage, um, 100 to 400 milligrams is the traditional microdosing range. So let me help people understand that if you've ever had a therapeutic journey or a heroic journey on mushrooms, you're most likely at 2.5 grams, 2,500 milligrams up to five grams or 5,000 milligrams or more. The traditional heroic dose used to be five grams, but mushrooms are growing stronger these days. And I wouldn't actually recommend five grams for people on the therapeutic. I mean, if you're going to do a therapeutic dose, I think you should have a therapeutic guide with you as well. I don't do that, absolutely, but you probably should. And if you're going to go stronger on the rec side, 
I would be around 1.5 grams. I wouldn't do more than that because some mushrooms are grown really, really well these days. And some are grown not so well. And uh, here, if a mushroom's grown not well, it will upset your stomach. And that's because there's a little bit of contem- bacterial contamination in the grow medium. That's usually an indication. If you eat a mushroom bar or do a mushroom product and you get the runs, it's because there was a little bacteria. It's not, it's not terrible. Tends not to be terrible, but it's a little bit unpleasant, everything, and that's what it means. And that's one way you can tell that you're getting real high quality good mushrooms is is um, they digest very well. You don't have any upset stomach and so forth. If you find you're using a product that's giving you an upset stomach, I'd probably advise you to look around because I've never heard it with Brain Supreme. Like mm-hmm. we've never had, we're also at the microdosing level, but we never get um I've I've yet to have an upset stomach. I've had um, two people who got headaches, but they both were. They thought they were recreational cocaine users, but other people might've thought differently. <laughs> I'm like, no, you are not a recreational cocaine user. <laughs> you are doing much more cocaine than that. And, um, and that was actually only with the nootropic formulation, which made me believe it could have been the L-theanine or L-tyrosine or alpha-GPC. Because um, they could take my feel good, which is um, the micros with the adaptogenic herbs. They had no problem with that. Um, couple other interesting things that I've learned along the way with microdosing is I am developing a theory that if you have modern brain toxicity, microdosing is less effective for you. So yeah, what I, causes that? When I, when I meet people who are on a more traditional American diet and a more traditional American pharmaceutical usage, they're taking three to five pharmaceutical products. Um, and there are rancid vegetable oils with the high linoleic acid. Um, there's a level of brain toxicity. And I found amongst the thousands of people that I've kind of talked to and counseled over the, over the time that there s- seems to be an impediment to um, microdosing psilocybin if you have high levels of brain toxicity. It just isn't as effective. Some of them have been committed. I've been able to put them on a diet that clears up their brain um, and it's been effective. But what's interesting is that, um, and Greg and I maybe know somebody in common, while the microdosing psilocybin doesn't work for them, somehow LSD, microdosing LSD pierces brain toxicity levels. Uh, something interesting about microdosing LSD. Now, I don't have, I don't have much anecdotal um, experience with this, but I, I seem to find that if, if somebody, if they're finding microdosing psilocybin non-effective, microdosing LSD might be effective for them. So it's something they might want to look into. It's harder to get and so forth, but it's something I, you know, something they might want to look into. With the microdosing psilocybin, um, so let's understand it in the terms of like tripping balls, a heroic dose, a therapeutic dose, historically has been five grams or 5,000 milligrams. I would tell people these days that, like I said, they're a little stronger these days. If you're going to do recreational dose on your own, you want to be about 1.5 grams. If you can do a therapeutic dose on your own um, or with a, you know, supervised kind of counselor and so forth, you're probably going to be 2.5 to 3.5 grams or 3,500 milligrams. Microdosing happens at about the sub 10% level of that between 100 to 400 milligrams. Some people a little bit more, but that tends to be this, that kind of tends to be the sweet spot overall. And what I like to advise people to do is to kind of demystify the process. You know, it's, it's going to be, you're going for just perceptible and a hundred milligrams of psilocybin might be perceptible to somebody, but nobody's going to have a hallucinogenic experience on it or trip or something like that. So the first thing I like to advise clients is, look, let's just limp into it. Let's demystify the process. 
start with one capsule. Probably really good to take it with um, empty stomach in the, mor- in the morning with lemon water. You eat psilocybin. Psilocybin hits your liver. It converts to psilocin. Your brain absorbs psilocin. The conversion process from psilocybin to psilocin is facilitated with citric acid or lemon juice. So a nice big glass of lemon water in the morning is a great way to take your microdosing. I've also personally found that a bulletproof coffee, coffee with fats, cream, coconut, whatever it may be, other nootropics in there, and you open your capsules or just throw your capsules right into your bulletproof and blend it right up. That's very effective. That's my method of choice. I do lemon water first thing. I do whole lemon. My little health routine is I take a whole lemon, preferably organic, blend it in 16 ounces of water with a little bit of chlorophyll every morning on an empty stomach to cleanse the blood, cleanse the liver, cleanse the arteries. Um, You get the skin, pith, and seeds of a lemon have five times the uh, vitamin C and anti-carcinogenic properties of just the juice. So do the whole lemon. Start with half a lemon so it doesn't upset your stomach. You adjust and build to a whole lemon, 16 ounce of water. First thing in the morning, empty stomach. It's like the best thing you can do for your health. It's extraordinary. You're going to get all your vitamin C and you get all these other anti-carcinogens and you get that kind of cleansing autophagy benefits of um, the citric acid and and its full components and all the bioflavonoids from the skin and the pith and the seeds. Um, I wait about 90 minutes and then I do a bulletproof coffee. I've got a, it's like, I'm going to make a video on it. It's so elaborate. I do ohm, you know, adaptogenic mushroom powder. I have a natural, um, I was on the cusp of my 53rd birthday and I've got so much to do, so much to make up for. I'm like, I need to take every known testosterone booster in the world. So I, (laughs) I researched them all and I ordered them all from Amazon, 13 different ingredients. And I threw them all in a mix, mixed them up. And I took like an idiot. I took a heaping teaspoon, a heaping teaspoon. I'm at dinner that night and I'm having a niacin flush like out of this world. My eyes are yellow. I'm sweating. My wife is like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, well, I tell her she's like, you idiot. And I was like jittery, but, um, that night when I went to bed, dude, I had a hard on, like what is going on here? And like, not to be too graphic, like my wife acquiesced, (laughs) the quality of the orgasm was something like I've never experienced. It was unbelievable. So I'm like, Oh, I might be onto something here. I cut the dosage way down to a quarter teaspoon. So I throw that in my smoothie. Um, that's got salt, palmetto, and all these great prostate herbs and so forth. So I do a whole elaborate bulletproof, which I'll go into when I put up a when I put up a video shortly. Um, and, but I put my micros right into my coffee, um, and that's really effective. Um, and so, and and so the the journey of microdosing is like you got to limp into it, especially if you're more unfamiliar. Let's first thing I want people to do is let's just get comfortable. Let's demystify the process because you don't want any anxiety, any concern. Do half a capsule, do one tab, and then. Most people's microdosing sweet spot is about 200 milligrams, two to 300 milligrams of active ingredients. So two to three capsules, probably depending on what product you're taking or what product you, you find. That tends to be the sweet spot for most people. And you're going you're gonna to find that there's a honeymoon effect that happens with microdosing. Interestingly, the first one or two days people microdose, they sometimes get very tired because mushrooms take you where you need to be, not necessarily where you want to go. And if you're exhausted and fatigued, a mushroom, a good mushroom is going to put you down. It's going to say, no, 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 take that little nap. You need that. That happens to me. Yeah. So give into that. Um, And then often you'll awake from the nap and the backside of that, um, I have this expression, I'm not a golfer, but I have this expression called the front nine and the back nine. Sometimes with microdosing, you can get a little peaky feeling, a little bit of like niacin feeling where you feel like you're kind of prickly heat from the inside. And sometimes that can even cause a little bit of anxiety. Just breathe, just ride that out, okay? 
because, and then the backside, the front nine can be rough, but the back nine is going to get very, very sweet. So there's a bit of an adjustment period to microdosing. There is a subjective process uh, where you have to really figure out what your process and protocol is. Um, but for most people, the general rule is two capsules, about 200 milligrams earlier, the front part of the day, lemon water or in a coffee, an empty stomach is better for the absorption standpoint. Um, and then you can start to, I, for a while had a practice of what I would call scaling and stacking. So I would take one genius and one feel good. Oh, and the, the, the other typical routine is five days on two days off. You don't want to microdose every day. You want to let your body kind of flush and let the neurological benefits kind of set in. And then you have a little bit after two days off, you kind of get a little bit of a sweet bump those first two days where they can be particularly perceptible. So I have one protocol that I recommend called scaling and stacking. Um, so I would take one genius and one brains and balls on Monday and Tuesday. So that's 200 milligrams of active. On Wednesday, I would do two genius, one brains and balls. So brains and balls is we blend the micros with natural tea boosters. Feel good is we blend the micros with adaptogenic herbs for emotional support. Genius is we blend the micros with nootropic herbs for additional um, neurocognition and neurological support. Every product, um, psilocybin is, is a great nootropic in and of itself. So they're all nootropics, but then there's some variation within that. And then Blackstack is our extra strength formula. And we blend that with vitamin C, real high quality crystal vitamin C to help the conversion process. And then a little bit of turmeric and ginger to tune the immune system up and so forth. Um, so I would do a, a scaling and stacking with, um, brains and, with brains and balls and genius on Monday and Tuesday, one and one. On Wednesday, I would go with two genius and one brains and balls. And Thursday and Friday, I bumped to a 400 milligram microdose of two genius and two brains and balls. Very, very effective. Um, what, I've started, what I've started doing now is I do a stronger microdose of two black stack on my hard training days. So on Monday and Wednesday, which tend to be my weightlifting days, about 30 minutes before I hit the gym with my Bulletproof coffee, I'll take two black stacks. So that's a 500 milligram microdose. It's definitely perceptible. And the benefits of that last through the week. So it's a, it's a subjective journey, limp into it, find your kind of sweet spot, and then you want to vary. And about every 25 to 30 days, I tell people to take five to 10 days off, just let it flush. Now, I have a lot of clients who have serious trauma and taking the two days off will give them trauma. Taking a week off gives them trauma. So I'm like, you know what? Then just stay with it. Okay. The mushrooms will kind of let you know when you're ready to take your breaks. Certainly, if this product is, or this kind of school of products is helping you with your anxiety and your issues, stay with it. Um, there's going to be an internal wisdom that's going to come out to you, okay, now I'm ready to take a break. And I've, I've found that. Um, so the last thing in the world that we want our product to do or any uh, mushroom product to do is to, to cause anxiety. It should be a curative for anxiety. And then with regards to the whole microdosing, you, you're, you also have a, 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 an opportunity for people to work with you under uh, microdosingcoach.co. Yeah, microdose coach. microdosecoach.co. Yeah, microdosecoach.co. So, and we'll link to that in the show notes, but yeah. just so people have that as well. And I'll also, I'll throw in, uh, we'll remind you at the end, but I'll do a, a nice discount for the great unlearn listeners. Oh yeah, okay. For, for Brain Supreme. Um, yeah, a little bit of coaching can be very beneficial. Um, I'm very generous with my time. I mean, I, I love this company and I love what we're doing and 
you know, we're, we're in a very interesting time and the kind of two companies, the one that's launched, the one that I'm trying to build, uh, the one that I'm building, you know, we're in a calamity of mental health right now. Uh, 78 million antidepressant prescriptions were written last year. I think there's 54, I might have this number, either 45 or 54 million Americans are on antidepressants. Adderall abuse, um, especially amongst young people, 80% of college students occasionally use Adderall. You know, even more of them abuse it. I've had like hardcore guys you could relate to. Like I've had hardcore stockbroker traders, like wired type A killers. They've been using Adderall for 25 years. They tell me three days on Brain Supreme, they stopped taking Adderall. The antidepressant thing is a little more challenging. I'll go into that now. But in terms of Adderall, like a good microdosing product will get somebody off Adderall like that. It's amazing. And I've heard it time and time again. Also alcohol consumption. Now, um, the Dell Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapeutics at the University of Texas. I mean, this, this industry is getting legitimized. You know, I don't know what the number was, but Michael Dell pumped a hell of a lot of money to create this whole division at the University of Texas. I go to their lectures. Unfortunately, in this modern idiocy that we live in, they're using synthetic psilocybin. Mm. Now, I'm not a fan of single molecule extraction. I'm okay with it with cannabis, but I really think the best cannabis products have full spectrum. You want all the terpenes, all the alkaloids, all the cannabinoids. Um, you want it all. And with psilocybin, you know, you want all the components in the mushroom. I like a really well-grown and dehydrated, or freeze-dried and ground product. I don't like single molecule extraction when it comes to psilocybin. I think you're messing with God. You know, I think the divine put certain plants there to really open up our conscious, consciousness and, and help us heal. So that's our company philosophy. We use whole fruit. Um, and we grow them really well, hydrate them really well and grind them really well. Um, so some of the things I found is like, I've had 50 clients come up to me about alcohol. They're like, you know, this interesting, my, my, the best one I'm going to tell is a Santa, there was a chef in Santa Rosa, really hardcore San Francisco chef opened up a great restaurant, in Santa Rosa. And this guy was like, he had cook, he had a real philosophy of cooking. He cooked hard. He ran a real hard kitchen and he would line up the shots after work, you know, and he'd do three or four shots. And he was a young guy, 29, 30. And I, I gave him a, uh, gave him a bottle of Brain Supreme. I used to love going to that restaurant. When I was passing by. We became friends. He called me up. He's like, hey man, the weirdest thing happened. Like, like I kind of realized like I haven't had a drink in two weeks since I started taking your product. And, um, I kind of was concerned I was becoming an alcoholic because I was lining up three to four shots after every shift. And I'm like, that can't be good. He's like, I'm driving home and I just realized I've stopped drinking. And I'm like, I hear it all the time. This is what I was saying. The Dell Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapeutics was one of the first case studies they did was on alcohol consumption. And they found that um, macro and microdosing leads to a 20% reduction in alcohol consumption. And here's the amazing part that I found, whether you're cognizant of it or not, I've had so many clients say to me, I've just stopped drinking. I hold a drink in my hand and I like sip it or I barely use it. And I never used to be that way. So that's been amazing. Anxiety, performance. Um, I hear that a lot. I hear a lot on the libido side that it's really helped people with their sex lives and, and their libido and in kind of a healthier way, like monogamous libido. And I just have this other belief system is that Mushrooms move the brain in a beneficial direction, whether you're cognizant of it or not. And if you go on a course of microdosing and you're combining it with some, with some intentionality, maybe some journaling, some real thought, like it can really put the wind in your sails. So I'm 263 pounds, I'm depressed, I've lost everything. And like literally my life took root again, 
made the move to Texas. So many things came together when we developed the genius formula. So I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in you know, thousands of, of customers and clients that I've worked with. Yeah, I found, I found my experience with microdosing, um, both with mushrooms and, and LSD have been really beneficial for me and did all the things you're talking about, um, really just kind of grounding me and allowing me to just zoom out a bit um, when I am feeling some sort of anxiety or it's just like this certain weight. It, it allows me to kind of breathe and move forward with better focus, energy, um, certainly sleep uh, is, is a benefit. Sports performance, I would say, you know, particularly I remember when I was training pretty hard, I was working uh, with LSD microdosing and it was, some days was significant what I was able to do. Um, and I've heard that from numerous other people that, that have, you know, been in that space. Yeah. The, uh, the microdosing has a certain there's a certain predictive quality to it where you can kind of, you can get into a, like a zone, a flow state zone where you almost know what the next move is going to be. Uh, I've had too many knee injuries with football to get too heavy into jujitsu, but some of my MMA and jujitsu clients, they talk about that there's a predictive quality to the way they roll when they're microdosing, which is very interesting. Yeah. And I've, I've really, I mean, since we met, I'd say about a month ago, I've been using, uh, more the black stack than the genius, but have really enjoyed that and how I felt. And, um, you know, it had been a while since I microdosed with mushrooms, but it's by far the best that I had ever done. And I did back in the day have some, a, a little bit of stomach issue every now and then didn't necessarily have the shits, but just that little gut, just the, the digestion would be off and I've had zero issues with it. So yeah, well, you definitely can, nailed that part. Good, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, and that's a real like for people out there. That's a real indication of of um, how clean the grow mediums are. Yeah, because that's where that comes from. Well, let's talk about Mighty One because that's something that you're working to launch right now, and I, I I think it's a it's a different conversation, but it's also like, hey, let's do things differently than we've you know done in the past, and you know we're microdosing. Uh, I even felt that what you talked about with wanting to drink alcohol less. It's just, you start to almost compare the two, whether again, uh, if it's at front of mind or not, it, it doesn't feel the same. And the booze feels like you start to feel a little bit more of that toxicity yes. of it. And I think with what you're working on with Mighty One, it's like there's a different way to uh, approach some toxicity um, that we have within our body and we all have some level of it. Um, some of it is, you know, by decisions we've made and uh, some of it is, you know, it's just environmental stressors and there are any number of uh, contributing factors to, you know, kind right. of where we're at. Right. And uh, people can kind of read between the lines if they want to really dig in to see what things could uh, be challenging our kind of internal systems. We're about to enter the non-YouTube portion of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, potentially. <laughs> so let's let, let, give us a, kind of the origin story of, of Mighty One and, and kind of, yeah, where you're at with it right now. So um, the people that I've been following for years with health, and media and information. But I, okay, so we were having this conversation before we went on air. If you, if you look at information 
if you look at your media, if you look at your news, like you talk, like you look at your money. So if you had an investment counselor who you were working with, who you really like their personality, you like their delivery, but they were 43% accurate with their investment. And you had another uh, investment counselor who you didn't really like them. They were a little gruff. They were a little abrupt. Um, the way they talked kind of turned you off, but they were 92% accurate with their investment. Like who would you be working with? Yeah, for sure. Would you, that, would you go with who you like or would you go with who's making you money? Yeah, yeah no, for sure. I mean, it, it's, we're talking dollars and cents here, people. Yeah. So, you know, um, Alex Jones has a 92% success ratio with the things he's talked about. Rachel Maddow's at 43%. So it's like, I realized that long ago, like I might have a bias. I might have, you know, certain liberalism, certain values, but like, who's right? Who's accurate? Like, what's the truth? And can I, can I discern between my ego and the things that I want to be true versus the things that are more perceptibly true? Um, and that sometimes are disruptively true and upsetting. So I, I went through and I, we were talking earlier, you know, I, I li- I'm a New York city guy historically parents were divorced. So I'd go back and forth between New Jersey and New York city. But I was like, you know, my dad had an apartment in New York city and I was in New York city a lot. And I lived in New York city after I graduated college from 92 to 98. And I would still go back a lot. So I was very familiar with the world trade center and the towers and let's not even deal with the towers, but like when tower seven fell, you know, I was just about 30 years old, 31 years old. And I was like, most young people don't even know what tower seven was, but there was a whole separate building. I think it was 35 stories. It's you know, whatever, 250 million tons of steel collapsed like a perfect pancake from a fire burning a quarter mile away. And then I found out because I, you know, when I would go back, I'd talk to firemen and stuff. And I found out that if you're a firefighter and you talked about your experiences, you could get fired, you could lose your pension, you know, get all, I'm like, what? That, that's the way liars work. You know, people who are operating in the realm of truth, like they allow free speech. So 9-11 was a radicalizing moment for me about the way we get information, the way we're fed and the levels of propaganda and how truly effective propaganda is. The fact that people don't even know about Tower 7 anymore is like propaganda works, man. Censorship, unfortunately, really works. So I've had this outlet outlook since the early 2000s. I started talking to my formulator. We came up with this idea for Mighty One, which is a very sophisticated form of uh, products and protocols to pull covid long-haul COVID, um, vaccine injury, um, vaccine kind of uh, adjudivants and ingredients and so forth, um, and then the kind of modern toxicity that we're exposed to on a daily basis to help get that out of your system. And so, you know, I think we're, with the companies that I'm launching, we're at a calamity of mental health. You know, COVID was terrible for mental health. It, um, it escalated our whole kind of calamity of mental health that we're happening. And we're a calamity of physical health right now. Like I personally feel we've reached toxic overload from a human being standpoint. Uh, I got to double check these statistics, like, but I think it's a credit card's worth of plastic. It used to be a month. Now it's about a week is ingested by the average human being. Hmm. You know, so many things that we weren't aware of, like when you microwave popcorn, that plastic aerosolizes. Uh, turns into a gas, aerosol. So when you open up the microwave, you're breathing in all those nanoparticles of plastics. When you, you know, when you have a paper coffee cup, that's not a paper coffee cup. That's a paper that's lined with sprayed plastic inside. So when you pour boiling hot liquid in there, you're getting all these nanoparticles. So like, and then, you know, air, food and water. And there's even a condition these days called um, glyphosate deuterium syndrome. So when you combine 
trace amounts of glyphosate, pesticide, Monsanto's Roundup Ready, which is sprayed on about 90% of wheat fields in this country two days before harvest. And then you combine that with rancid vegetable oils that are processed with hexan and all these other um, petrochemicals and so forth. Uh, super high in linoleic acid that the two of them, the glyphosate combines with the low in the linoleic acid to literally degrade your cellular structure, uh, challenge and degrade your immune system and degrade your cellular, cellular integrity. So our bodies are literally being assaulted by these toxins and by, and then the other thing too, when I talked about like graphs and charts and statistics, nothing is more scientific than statistics. And something happened around 1990 that changed literally children's health. You know, I've got, I've got kids, you you know, everybody in the room, we, we've all got kids like, and if we're just being honest about how, as we, how we were when we were kids and the level of physical health and well-being versus what we see now, like, why can't I trust that? Like, I remember being in a class of 35 kids and we had one kid that we would call maybe a spaz, you know, somebody that was a little bit off. You put a classroom of 35 kids together these days and the amount of food allergies, the amount of autism, ADD, ADHD, um, Asperger's, it's not even close, man. And like, you know, we were talking earlier about this whole thing of like, you know, the dangers of speculating versus the dangers of not speculating. You know, I think we're at the standpoint now where like where people really should speculate and you should trust what you see with your eyes. And if something, if a building falls down like a perfect pancake and it just doesn't make sense to you, like, that's okay. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah, quite. I mean, it's it's like what I say on here a lot is just to be willing to question it all and, and be okay with where it leads you. Yeah, have your own experience. Don't just take someone's word for it. Because in 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 a lot of cases in this society, they're they have a vested interest in a particular narrative. Yeah, and uh, it's our job to question. Uh, don't necessarily need to be confrontational, but sometimes that's important, but to really question it in, in like, what do we feel is actually going on right now? There's that great line from Steinbeck. It's amazing how difficult it is to get a man to realize something when his livelihood is based upon him not realizing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all kind of, you know, we're all driven by that. Mm-hmm. And the deeper you go with the kind of power structures that really dominate things, they're very driven by that. So with Mighty One, we are setting out to create the most sophisticated products and protocols to pull spike protein injury, um, which mostly deals with microclotting, starts with microclotting, um, to deal with long-haul COVID symptoms and the kind of uh, catastrophe of toxification that the modern American human body, world humans are dealing with these days. You can track everything back to about 1990. Um, four significant things happen. I've been talking about this for years and finally kind of starting to hear other people talk about it. I've also been following Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Del Bigtree for years. Um, and I think two guys in particular, Mike Adams, the health ranger and Dr. Mercola, like they're not getting the credit they should be. Like these were the guys who were really ringing the alarm a long time ago. I mean, Mercola in the late nineties when he started his website was talking about these things. The guy's the kind of grandfather of it all. And Mike Adams does incredible work, really important work. You know, Del Bigtree, who've had on, I mean, you know, these guys are brave and they're angels walking on the earth. Um, so in 1990, the vaccine schedule was changed. When you and I were kids, it was nine vaccines, 14 total shots from birth to 18. Nowadays, depending on how many flu shots or COVID shots you might do, 
it's around 25 shots and uh, 25 vaccines and 78 total shots. And it starts in utero. It starts when women are pregnant. Um, we introduced glyphosate pesticide sprayed on wheat fields two days before harvest in 1990. And the sole reason why that was done was to, so the combines don't get gummed up. So the farming is more efficient because when you spray glyphosate Roundup Ready on wheat fields two days before harvest, the crop dies off enough that you don't have to stop and clean the combines. So you can just run those tractors nonstop. Now you think about that wheat is not washed, wheat is dried and it is chafed, but the pesticide load in wheat is just extraordinary. I ask people out there like, I'm the idea guy, I'm the marketing guy, I'm the guy with a good heart, but like everything I say is truthful, my facts might be off. And I tell people that about myself, but go research the facts for yourself. But I think it's um, 80% of breast milk, um, of breastfeeding women have glyphosate pesticide in their breast milk. And I think um, urine of children, uh, about 80% of children will have glyphosate, trace amounts of glyphosate pesticide in their urine. So we changed the vaccine schedule from nine shots, 14 total vaccines to 25, you know, 28 over well over 23 shots and uh, 23 vaccines, 78 shots. We introduced glyphosate pesticide on wheat fields in 1990 and um, genetically modified foods were introduced into the market with the first in 1990. And then this explosion of the use of plastics. Um, and so I think those four elements in combination have led to this explosion of childhood ailments now. You know, autism is off the charts. And the other thing that we have to kind of realize as a society so we're at a calamity of mental health, a calamity of physical health, and we need products, processes, protocols, procedures that can naturally help detoxify and re-energize the body. So ATP production. ATP is the power source that fires your cells and your mitochondria. We all need to develop products um, that deal with, a one of the th products in Mighty One does that specifically. It's for cellular support production. The next product is an empty stomach enzymatic blend. The real issues, so look, your body's assimilated of proteins, 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 proteins. So when a spike protein is in your system, you can't really do anything about that. You can't attack the spike protein because you don't, we don't know enough about them. We don't know how the proteins can interact, but we do know that the microclotting, the microfibrin seems to be the root issue of most of the vaccine injury. The myocarditis, the pericarditis are caused by subclinical striation, subclinical Subclinical striation means that the, the, the chafing, the scarring of the artery in the heart is happening from the inside out. It's perceptible through tests when it's happening from the outside in, but when it's happening from the inside out, it's what's referred to as subclinical. You can't tell it's happening. Um, the neurological disorders seem to be happening from microclotting um, happening in the brain. And the cancers also seem to be triggered by the genetic manipulations that happen in the product, a lot of these adjutivin ingredients, um, and also the microclotting. So we have an empty stomach enzymatic blend that is designed to kind of help go in and dissolve the microclotting. So when you take enzymes on a full stomach, they help digest your food, or before you eat, they help digest your food. If you can take enzymes on empty stomach, they help cleanse your blood. Um, and then we have our... Um, our neurological support, non-psilocybin, this is a totally different project. It's a neurological support, helps with brain cognition, clearing the brain and ATP production. And then we have, um, with food later in the day, we have a detoxification formula that helps bind to nanoparticles, heavy metals, nanoplastics, and different adjudians and help pull them out of your system. 
And then we're going to have a protocol of sweating, sauna. If you, um, and then really helping people and educating them about cellular autophagy. The easiest way to understand cellular autophagy is that it's the process of your cells naturally expunging and cleaning dead material out of your body. It's arterial cleansing. Think of it that way. You know, when you sweat, you cleanse and then, but at a deeper level, um, there's arterial cleansing, that your blood is cleansing, your arteries are cleansing, your cells are purging um, dead matter and so forth. And that's really what we need. That seems to be kind of the holy grail um, of detoxification. You know, you got to cleanse the blood, you got to help cleanse and purify the brain. um, And then you need to take a product that can bind to all that shit later in the day and help pull it out of your system. And that's really, and literally um, I have two science partners and every functional MD that we've presented our formulas to has signed on to be part of our board. So we really think we just need, this is, it's a heavy duty raise. um, So we're just out to kind of raise the capital on that. But I'll have microdosecoach.co lead to a consultation service for detoxification because that's something we're really going into. And I feel um, the term is dharma, your, uh, your sacred duty. And for me, this is a sacred calling. What you see isn't necessarily, um, you know, what you were taught about this is how government works and there's a bill and it passes through the house. And it's like, sure, that, that process is in place, but there's something much different going on that uh, it's hard for people. It's hard for people to uh, talk about cognitive dissonance or yes. like it just can't be. And it's like, well, don't know how much of it is true, but there's uh, there's definitely truth to what's happened. And it's terrifying for people to think that they live in a world that that's happening. And it is yeah. what's happening. It is what's happening. To what degree? It, don't know. It, but, but it's, again, back to like, just start to question shit and just know that uh, ignorance is not bliss. It's not bliss. With that in mind, what, what Tell me, when, when do you hope to roll out uh, Mighty One? I know you're still waiting on some funding, but what's the ideal kind of time frame? So we have the formulations worked out. We have a manu- really super high quality manufacturer in place. Um, it's about, these days with supplements, it's about a four month lead time from funding to when you have finished goods ready to ship. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, within five to six months, I'd like to have, you know, website built products, you know, drop shipping company ready and, and getting into, we're going to start with the functional MDs and the uh, medical kind of uh, wellness clinics. That's our first course of action. We already have commitments from several uh, functional medicine clinics. They'd, they'd want to make this kind of their standard of care for anybody. I, the, all the functional MDs who are all part of our board, um, and these are at executive level functional MD clinics, which are, tend to be not cheap. Um, they feel that 20 to 25% of their clientele base has some level of vaccine injury. It's pretty alarming. Yeah. So we're going to start with the functional clinics and the wellness clinics, um, functional MD clinics, wellness clinics. And then from there, we kind of um, probably have to raise more capital and go out really broad and try to be on you know every um, natural market and, and natural grocer you know, Whole Foods kind of type um, central market of the world. So in the meantime, where can people kind of follow you and, you know, kind of stay abreast of the, the, the kind of 
progress. Sure. So um, people can email me at adam at thebrainsupreme.com, adam at thebrainsupreme.com. Um, we've got, um, oh boy, I should have been prepped on this. We've got a Brain Supreme TikTok. We've got a Brain Supreme Instagram. That'll, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that's all oh, okay. linked to. Yep. Um, I have um, microdosecoach.co. Um, dot co. Um, that'll be by the time this airs, that'll be up and ready. Uh, and there'll be opportunities to uh, book some time or for consultation. And then I think what I'll do is I'll lead to a detoxification coaching website from that website as well. Perfect. And so there'll be a contact on there for yeah. at the very least, like people yes. can reach out to you yes. Yes. and stay. Yeah. And I'll informed. have, um, I'll have like, uh, um, like a PDF of uh, protocols, you know, but like, like just briefly, like sweat, like you want to, if you think you're vaccine injured, you probably want to be careful about your heart rate. Um, kind of stay in the zone one, zone two. Um, but sweating is really good. If you can join a gym or get access to a sauna, like you want uh, one hour to 90 minutes of really good sweating each week. You want to do the lemon water trick first thing in the morning, go find a good enzymatic um, formula, natokinase, dryokinase, lumbrokinase, some other of um, enzymes as well. Take that on an empty stomach. Um, Find a good detoxification product out there that you can uh, that you can order. Take it, take that later in the day with food. Throw some creatine um, in your smoothie in the morning for neurological function and ATP production. There's some things that everybody can do, kind of in the meantime for sure. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, we got a code. We'll do. Oh uh, yeah, that's for, right. The code for brainsupreme.co, brainsupreme.co. We'll do a code of unlearn twenty. Perfect. Twenty percent off. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for being on. No, and thank you, Cal, man. You, you know, you're a super successful guy who could be leading a life of just leisure and luxury. And you're out there, you know, fighting for humanity. That's a blessing. Thank you. I still try to mix in the yeah. leisure <laughs> a bit. You do good in the world. Man. All right. Thanks, brother. Yes. Thank you. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearned.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.